Welcome to Success That Last, a podcast that seeks to have honest, candid conversations about the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we'll talk to a business owner, real estate investor, or industry consultant about their own experiences, observations, and insights as it pertains to that complicated topic of success. What do you get when you combine neuroscience, financial psychology, mental health, and behavior change? You get Dr. Moira Summers. Moira is a PhD based out of Winnipeg. She's a clinical psychologist as well as a neuropsychologist. In her role as a wealth psychologist, Moira spends time helping advisors and families develop healthy financial attitudes and behaviors. More specifically, she's really focused on sudden wealth, intergenerational wealth transfer, and raising financially responsible children. Moira has paraphrased the focus of her business as money, mind, and meaning, which is absolutely perfect to describe today's episode and the content of our conversation. We'll cover the predictable emotional complexities of wealth, the hedonic treadmill, the paradox of choice, more isn't always better, what role generosity plays, what are some of the predictive ingredients to a fulfilling life and ensuring that money shows up in helpful and clarifying ways. Throughout the show, many wonderful resources and tools will be discussed, but if you're on the go, don't worry about it. We'll go ahead and link to those in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation to discuss the psychology of wealth with Moira Summers. Moira Summers, welcome to the show. I have been so excited about today's conversation. I've actually read not only your book, but several of the books that you have referred so that it could show up as prepared as possible. Excited for today's conversation and the ideas you're going to share with our community. It is so good to talk to you. Awesome. So for starters, you identify as a wealth psychologist. True? True. True. So that's fascinating to me, which is probably one of the reasons that I engaged so much into today's show's preparation. But presumably you didn't start there. So Maybe talk to me about what does a wealth psychologist do? Kind of what are some of the activities that you fill your day with? And maybe the journey that led you to the opportunity to impact people in the role that you play today. Thank you. I didn't start out thinking this is what I want to do with my life or my career. I am a clinical neuropsychologist by training and I've spent much of my career working with frankly, very sick people or people who have been in very horrific accidents where overnight life has changed very quickly for them. And through that process of working with people, what I saw so often was this profound interface, Jared, between money and well-being. And it wasn't just sort of the obvious surface level stuff, you know, like more money gets you access to better health care. It wasn't at just that surface level. It was things like, did you and your spouse know how to have productive and respectful money conversations before you became ill or before you became injured? Did you know how to live below your means? Did you know how to make trade-offs? And so across the wealth spectrum, the people who had better relationships to money and with money seemed to have much better outcomes than the folks who didn't. And that just became increasingly fascinating to me. 
And when you combine that with the findings year after year that people say the biggest source of stress in their life is money, I thought, isn't that strange that most psychologists don't know how to talk to people about their money? And what might happen if that were to change? What might happen if I could bring people into money conversations in a way that would be slightly different from how advisors or accountants do? And so that's how it all started. Fascinating. So presumably, when I go to your website, your branding is money, mind, and meaning. And I love it for a variety of reasons. The alliteration just being a small part of it. But there's clearly meaning to that. So I guess, unpack that. How did you come to declare money, mind, and meaning as a primary kind of component of your branding and how you help Mm -hmm. clients today? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that there are a lot of distortions or kind of negative energies around money. There can be a kind of money worshiping. There can be a kind of money avoiding. And what I wanted to do was to be able to help people be free of the sway of short-term emotion and some of the unfortunate ways that that can lead to regrettable behavior and instead sink into deeper and deeper levels of meaning about how they want money to flow in and out of their lives. And as a neuropsychologist, of course, I'm always fascinated by brain stuff and what we know about things like cognitive bias and neuroeconomics and how the brain processes information in such a way as to either facilitate good decisions or to kind of lead us down the wrong path. So that it kind of brought together all my interests. Love it. So that brings up an interesting conversation because though we might spend time addressing a common theme of our conversations, I guess maybe where we start that conversation is fundamentally very different. I studied finance in a master's program and have spent my career helping people hopefully make more predictable, profitable decisions. And so it's biased maybe towards some of the quantitative nature of wealth. And you spend a lot more time talking about maybe the qualitative aspects of money in terms of how money shows up in one's life and in one's family. And I've actually come to appreciate that at times there's maybe more value to be added to the conversation talking about maybe some of the qualitative ways that money can show up, ways that it can create fulfillment, or maybe ways that it competes against it. And so ultimately makes it a complicated conversation. You talked about some of the things that make money complicated And you talked about maybe some of the research that for me, first discovered with Daniel Kahneman and kind of behavioral finance and love that. But as a whole, it's interesting that we generally don't identify with being irrational. We kind of generally think of ourselves as rational beings that make rational decisions. And presumably the data doesn't support that, right? And so where would you see some of the odd things about in terms of where we might have biological predispositions to unhealthy decisions or irrational decisions? Yeah, you know, sometimes I struggle with that phrase or that adjective irrational. I think sometimes we give each other a a bit of a bad rap around that. I mean, we did make it to the top of the food chain, so we're doing something right. Totally. (laughs) However, we have also wreaked havoc in getting there. And so I think what I just do is embrace the totality that what it means to be a normal human being is that sometimes we get diverted by things that aren't in our best interest. And sometimes we have trouble persisting in things that are 
in our best interest. And sometimes we are influenced by things that are completely outside conscious awareness. Marketers know that. There's a reason that marketing is a multi-billion dollar industry every year. It exists to part us with our money. And it's not so much always that we're irrational or that we're weak-willed. Often it's that we're just outgunned (laughs) and we're, we're just not fully conscious of stuff. And so you can just end up kind of drifting along in whatever the cultural norms are for you, either within your religious group or within your cultural group or within even your national identity without really saying, where do I want to fix myself in here? What do I believe about the meaning of money in my life? How do I want to earn and spend and invest and give and ultimately transfer? What do I believe about that? And how can I make decisions in light of those things? I think one of the value, among the incredible value that people like you provide, Jared, is not only in that quantitative end of things, but when people like you have this profound respect for the fact that the personal side of money is just as important and just as complex in its own ways. And when you bring those issues into the quantitative discussions, it just makes a world of difference in clients' lives. Thank you. So potentially, I guess there's this concept of loss aversion in behavioral Mm -hmm. finance that we're Mm -hmm. more motivated to avoid things that have negative outcomes. And potentially that might shape the way that conversations occur or way that marketing occurs. Before we jumped on live, we talked a little bit about, there's a lot of things that you could talk about. You could frame the conversation around what to avoid, or you could maybe shape it differently around what to pursue. And running from something is different than running to something. And so fundamentally then, there are probably some best practices. So from a financial literacy perspective, there's all kinds of different ways to think about financial decisions and some of the underlying best practices that one would need to understand to make kind of quantitatively better decisions as it pertains to financial decisions. But I guess from a psychological perspective, from a fulfillment perspective, if somebody was interested in exploring how they think about money, how it shows up in their life, it potentially might be a new way of thinking about money because normally just more is better. But kind of what you were just talking about, where would one start to better understand some of the inputs that would precede better outcomes in terms of just fulfillment and allowing money to show up in a more supportive way within their life and the lives of their children and grandchildren? Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's lots of doorways into it. One doorway that a lot of people find very revealing, I guess, is when they track their finances for a period of time and they see where does the money go? This isn't a matter of, you know, trying to get people to live within their means. These may be people who have quite considerable means and are living within them already. But nevertheless, to be looking at where does the money flow in and out of our life? And is this what we want to be exchanging our vital life energy in the form of time? Is this what we want to exchange our time for? For this money spent in this way? Many families do things like at the beginning of a new year, for example, they might sit down and decide where do they want their charitable donations to go this year? What's on their heart? Mm -hmm. Who within their circles might need more of a bigger hand now while you're still alive to help them rather than waiting until you pass on to make that difference? So looking at givings, looking at spending, 
crises like the one that we're in, where a lot of people have just been catapulted out of work as usual and are now looking at things like, what do I think about working this way? Do I like this? Or what have I learned about the value of my team and being in touch with my team or developing my team? You can increase your consciousness around money through a whole bunch of different ways. Reading is another one by looking at some of the books that really challenge us to think about the spiritual meaning of money or the social impact of investing, for example. All kinds of roads in. Yeah, it's a fun and emerging place within purposeful profits, kind of this conscientious capitalism or socially Mm -hmm. responsible investing. Like, How do you align your wealth and values in in a more practical, where the rubber meets the road way? And, And certainly there's all kinds of rewards, not just financial, in creating that alignment. Yes. Once you've made a decision and really got clear on what matters to you, I think you need to be intentional about what kind of messaging you surround yourself with. Because if everybody is just saying you're ridiculous for not maximizing your profit when you can in investing, you can always give away the profit, but you should be maximizing it. And you've already decided you don't want to invest in things that hurt the earth or hurt other people. Then the social support around those decisions becomes really important. The fact that you might be part of a community that can support you and expand your thinking and your opportunities in ways that really meet your needs. You know, you don't want to do it in a way that makes you impervious to different opinions but especially if you're really trying to establish new financial behaviors that might go against what you've always done, that might go against the grain of society, it's important that you get support for that. Absolutely. One of the books that I read to prepare for our conversation today was actually your referral, the Courtney Poland book, Intentional Wealth, and loved it. It was a great read. And, And one of the quotes from the book was an anecdote that he shared from a conversation he had And uh, the quote goes something like this. I need to bring as much attention to my family as I do my business. I didn't run my business by making things up as I went. My success was grounded in sound business principles and being clear about my mission, vision, values, and strategy. I need to bring that same intention to my family. And I think that that's interesting because generally, most of us have a business plan or marketing plan or financial plan, but we don't always have other plans for other categories in terms of How am I going to approach my marriage or my kids or my community? And so that reminded me actually of a process that I went through a couple of years ago, personal strategic action planning or, or life planning. It's kind of a loaded term that seems to be misunderstood, but I found that discovery process of really identifying my priorities helpful in stack ranking the priorities because, you know, though balance is something we all strive for, to me, The image that comes to mind is a form of equilibrium, and it's really not that. It's more about resource allocation. So for me, the major part of the planning process was where do I spend my time? Because that's a finite resource. But a byproduct is it's also helped create clarity around some of the financial decisions that you make. I guess clarity around priorities. Mm -hmm. So when you're working with some high net worth families, it's quite common to kind of go through this family planning process? And I guess kind of what has been your experience around something similar, maybe from a family perspective of generational wealth and what role intentionality plays in transitioning well? Oh boy. 
I mean, if we're talking first generational wealth, let's just start there with somebody who's become quite successful in business or has got a very lucrative, high paying job. What often comes with that is a complete kind of absorption in the work. Mm-hmm. And as a result, families often just kind of get the sloppy leftovers. That also happens for people who are struggling to make it or just working at any level and trying to do a good job. Family often gets our leftovers. And so part of intentional wealth at any level is trying to figure out how do we toggle between these different aspects of our life that are really essential. And when big decision points are made, like do we move? Do we take this bigger career? Do we partner up? Do we sell? Do we go public? It really helps to have a discussion about no matter which way we go with this, not only the economic impact of it, but the family implications for it. Taking this bigger job with the longer commute, what does that really look like then in terms of when I get home at the end of the day? And more importantly, what shape I'm in at the end of the day? If I used to get home at five and now I'm going to be home at 6.30, what does that mean? Is this the right time to be doing that? How might I mitigate some of the negative consequences of that? I think the COVID crisis has just taught us so much about our ability to pivot and to do things in very different ways than we ever dreamed possible. And if we can stay kind of conscious and assertive about what that means for how we want to integrate work and wealth with family, I think we'll come out better for it. What I'm hearing already is families saying things like, I am really sorry that my kids can't go to choir right now and hockey and soccer and all of the other things. But what I also realized was just how frantic we were getting. And so although wealth provides the ability to engage in all kinds of opportunities and activities, sometimes it just kind of dissipates us. It dissipates our best energy from things that matter more. Interesting. Well, one of the, I guess, byproducts of wealth is more choices and more opportunities. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things, I became a father at 25. And obviously at 25, you're not in a place in your career where you're Mm -hmm. as economically as successful as you would be later on. So Mm -hmm. early in my parenting journey, simply responding to my children's wants with, we can't afford that, eliminated the conversation that might later on become more difficult. Now, Mm -hmm. we've started to advance in our careers, finances have followed, and now you can't just simply respond, we can't afford that, which is an interesting insight into one of the challenges of raising healthy, productive, engaged children when you have choices. And so saying no, because we don't prioritize that is a completely different conversation and in many ways more challenging. Mm-hmm. So I guess one of the benefits of wealth is that it can eliminate barriers, but at the same time, barriers can be helpful and an important part of our development. So if you are somebody who has financial resources that has the opportunity to eliminate barriers for your children or grandchildren, how do you begin to think about what are the right barriers? What are the question. What are the right ways to think about mm-hmm. what's the right amount of adversity? Because wealth could maybe be the bulldozer that solves problems and eliminates adversity. But what's the byproduct? What's the implications in your children and grandchildren's lives? Mm-hmm. 
I think one of the overarching principles for sure needs to be that wealth should not buffer kids from the consequences of their own actions. So just because you could afford to pay their speeding ticket doesn't mean that that's a good idea. And it can start even earlier, right? Just because you could buy the whole crate of Girl Guide cookies doesn't mean that you shouldn't go through that going down the street, pulling the little wagon and helping that child develop the moxie to knock on a stranger's door and sell a box of cookies. It's that kind of thing that money should not take away opportunity to grow and learn. Increasingly, I think we're also becoming aware that Money can buy a certain level of exclusivity that keeps us apart from people of other cultures, people who have different challenges than we do. And that doesn't seem to be working out so well as a social experiment either. And so to really be conscious about how can I make sure that the opportunities I'm giving my kids are not just to mix with other children of similar economic background. But how can I make sure that they show up as real citizens of the world? But I can't emphasize enough the fact that where I see it really hampering resilience and growth is when it takes away kids' opportunities to learn from natural or logical consequences and when it keeps kids from having to get jobs or experience the consequences of failure from not working hard enough those kinds of things. There's no strength without adversity. I mean, I think the research is really clear on that. There is no strength without adversity. It's manageable adversity, right? Like it needs to be something that isn't going to damage or traumatize somebody. That's what we want our wealth to help prevent is trauma and irreparable damage. But you don't want it to create the equivalent of hothouse flowers. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up. So selfishly as a father, I'm trying to figure that out with younger children. And so I've been impacted by some of the work from Angela Duckworth and Grit. Obviously, passion is something that you want your kids to find. But the perseverance component, what's the right amount? Or I read Jonathan Haidt's book. He's a psychologist there at New York University, Coddling of American Mind. And Mm -hmm. he introduced me years ago to this concept of anti-fragility, which was a topic in an earlier podcast, this concept that there's a difference between being not fragile and anti-fragility. And so I'm trying to better understand that dynamic, I guess, in your own experience, or maybe the research, what does the empirical data or your own experiences say? It's interesting, a lot of first generational wealth, the money is actually a byproduct. It was the pursuit of something else, right? It was the pursuit of solving a problem, passion for the client, passion for the team, passion for progress and money was a byproduct, but then Gen 2, Gen 3, they begin to experience wealth different because then wealth is primary versus a byproduct. Mm -hmm. Sure. And there are two psychologists, James Grubman and Dennis Jaffe, who've written about money as creating a kind of culture. And so the first generation are immigrants to wealth. And the subsequent ones are natives to wealth, just the way we think of immigrants or natives to technology. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I love that metaphor. It captures a lot. You're right about this paradox of choice notion that sometimes more choice does not lead to more happiness. You know, I've got got an 18-year-old and a 22-year-old who are both at, at kind of distinct departure points in the university. And I was riding in the car with 
the 18-year-old a while back and he just slumped back in the car seat and said, Mom, there are seven continents. (laughs) Okay, we're just talking about a summer job, honey. Why don't we just stay local? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it just struck me that he's been raised with this notion that anywhere anything might be within reach to somebody who's got time, discipline, and talent to reach. And that sometimes it's good just to shrink the circle a little bit so that a little bit less choice can help people get out of park. Absolutely. Yeah. The kind of that concept of paradox of choice. Sometimes more choices actually creates more stress, more anxiety mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. kind of half joking, but notorious B.I.G. Mo money, more problems, right? <laughs> and so it can be more true than I think people really acknowledge. Mm-hmm. I think before you have wealth, a- you just assume that wealth would eliminate all of your problems. Right. It is one of the particular challenges of people born into wealth that they may not have seen any part of the struggle that went yeah. into achieving it. And so that that wealth builder, he or she just looms large in the family psyche and nobody knows. Like, they don't hear the story of the failures, of the setbacks, of the dark nights of the soul of the times they had to declare bankruptcy or the times that everybody was skimping and saving to make the next payment. Those stories get lost. And so we really encourage people to share their stories, to talk about the gaffes that they've made, regrettable decisions they've made in life, financial and otherwise. It can be just a a wonderful, memorable family meal to say, what's the dumbest thing you ever bought? That's a spectacular question. (laughs) I'm going to plead the fifth on that. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's pretty awesome. Hopefully it's not the house you're sitting in at the time, but... uh. Totally, totally. Those are interesting. It seems as though the families that transition well, they've learned how to kind of memorialize the photo book moments, the journey along the way, the forks in the road that were instrumental in how the family approaches wealth, money, society, the community, and I guess how money shows up in their life. One component of kind of the wealth journey then is if wealth is a byproduct of excellence in another area, philanthropy seems to be a component of the overall conversation. And at some point, people end up having to kind of contemplate what role does generosity and philanthropy Mm. play in our life. And before you get to kind of tactics and execution, I was curious from a psychological perspective, what the data implies in terms of ways that money could be used to create some level of fulfillment or meaning. Yeah, what th- legacy planning or generosity plays in how money shows up and is experienced? Well, full confession, I haven't delved into that literature in about a year now. So if there's something amazing and extraordinary, I might have missed it. But so far, the data seem to show that one of the ways in which money can increase happiness is by intentional giving how we use it to make a difference in the lives of people or in the causes that matter to us. That seems to be more than just a temporary happiness hit. It seems to actually kind of start changing us at the cellular level to become aware that, that something can make a profound difference, even a generational difference, and that you can have a role to play in that. That's pretty spectacular, and it makes people really happy. One proviso, I guess, that I would put there is that 
sometimes kids are brought in, especially when there's a family office or when there is a family foundation, sometimes kids get encouraged to fold into that for a career before they've had a chance to really figure out who they are. You know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a ready-made career opportunity. Even the family business can become this you know, you just kind of slip into it like you're slipping into third gear. It's right there. It's so easy. You're welcome. You're loved. You're needed. The danger in that is that, goes back to that hothouse flower thing, Jared, is that sometimes we find out who we are by separating from our family, at least for a time. Absolutely. Right? About going away to school, about working in somebody else's firm, about finding out how other foundations do things by figuring out why is family charity trips to the orphanages in Africa, why have those been getting criticized lately? And how could we make sure that we're showing up in ways that truly do benefit the people that we hope to be making a difference for, not just giving our family a great experience that makes us feel good about ourselves? The opportunity for people to get out of the family system and experience other ways of thinking and behaving allows them to come back into the system with different forms of capital, social capital, intellectual capital that can then be used for the good of the family business and the good of the family. I love that. Yeah, there's a fun kind of insightful book called When Helping Hurts. And sometimes Mm. great intentions don't translate to great outcomes. And so sometimes that's important. Just what's the ultimate outcome of some of these efforts? And how do we measure impact? Because some of the problems that are worth solving aren't easy problems to solve. And you you look at where the Gates Foundation spends a lot of their time, energy, and effort. They're fun problems to solve. But when they're thinking about the modern toilet, Yes. You know, if, if you were to yes. modernize the toilet, it would probably solve a lot more diseases than anyone else. But that's not a very fun place to go spend your money. <laughs> right? And uh, thank God they're thinking of it, right? Yeah. Somebody's yeah. got to fix that problem because yeah. it would positively impact millions of lives. So. Yeah. And, you know, and I think there's a way that you can get into really unhelpful navel gazing and paralysis where you're not any good to anybody else. So... That's where, again, it, you just need to integrate it with what matters to you and what kinds of experiences can money give you that will educate you and open your eyes and allow you to participate in ways that bring increased meaning and connection to your life. Yeah. One of the ways that a lot of people that are deeply involved in family wealth. It's looking at the holistic balance sheet of the family, not just the financial wealth, but the spiritual health, the financial health, the psychological health, physical health. And clearly some of these experiences that shape who you are as a person have psychological kind of emotional benefits as well that enhance the family's overall holistic balance sheet. Grubman and Jaffe, whom I mentioned earlier, they have some interesting data on how subsequent generations actually enhance family businesses? How do they change it? And one piece of evidence is that they often are way more intentional, perhaps because they have to be, but they're way more intentional about how to use the business to hold families together. Yeah. Um, The glue. Yeah. Yeah. 
And another thing that I'm seeing increasingly in my own consultation work is third and fourth generation folks coming in and really looking at the bigger picture, like, are we giving our employees a living wage? Are we sourcing our materials in a really reputable way? Is the supply chain, what have we learned about that through COVID? And so they're just connecting again to something outside of themselves in a way that is so not just about profit. It's about the other aspects of wealth. Yeah, definitely. So I could probably carry this conversation for another seven or eight hours, but in the spirit of efficiency here, I'm kind of curious. So this conversation has been fascinating to me. I've got a laundry list of potential follow-up items, but for our listeners, they might have had their curiosity perked a little bit here. And if they're looking to kind of further explore some of the topics, we've shared a couple of authors. Is Jolene Godfrey somebody worth checking out? She's got that book, Raising Financially Fit Kids. Mm -hmm. That one's a really good idea. I think you just have to promise yourself that you won't let yourself become (laughs) a wash and regret for what you didn't do at the developmental age. It's kind of a big thing. But if you just read it as a possible trajectory of things that it's a great idea for people to know about at some point in their lifetime, that's a good thing. If it's possible, I'll get you to attach a link to one of the articles I've written on what I think are 21st century financial survival skills for modern families. Uh, Absolutely. So we'll put those in the show notes. Sure, sure. All right. And, you know, I'd just love to hear from you and your listeners about whether you think I missed anything. Because ultimately, financial literacy isn't just about financial know-how. It requires this kind of melding with emotional intelligence. So to live within one's means, for example, means that you have to know what it is that you want to be spending money on, that you're intentional about that, that you're not letting the glossy magazine determine that. And it also means that you're willing to develop skills in delaying gratification, for example to have productive and tender money conversations, which is another item on my list, requires that you be able to take somebody else's perspective and that you be able to be assertive in communicating your own. And so these are the tasks of a lifetime. They last right up into how and why we want to transfer our wealth. And so I just want to encourage listeners as I want to be constantly awash and encouragement myself that we can get better at anything we turn our attention to. And whatever mistakes we might have made along the way, we can determine, we can reset at any point we want and decide how is it we want to move forward. I love that. So where am I thinking about it correctly? Hearing you say that, it sounds like a Earlier in one of the shows came into the phrase cultural hygiene, kind of the things that you have to do each and every day, you're never done doing them. Mm. Is this kind of a journey, this perpetual pursuit of just kind of better understanding all these topics and experiencing them with the new knowledge and new experiences that you have? I think it is. You know, it's kind of like another turn of the cycle. There's a spiritual discipline that I think it began in England or Europe. It was called walking the labyrinth. And then you would go into, it's not sort of like a corn maze where you're frantic to find the out. It's just a couple of feet high, but it's a bunch of little shrubs. And you just very intentionally, meditatively walk through this labyrinth and notice how 
the next corner you turn, you're kind of back to that place that looks pretty familiar, that place where you might, very close to where you started, except you're a couple of feet away and you just have that slightly different perspective and you're to notice that. That's the whole discipline around walking the labyrinth. And I think that's a nice metaphor sometimes for how the financial stuff takes us on this journey where we turn a corner and we get a slightly different perspective on how we've been showing up and we get a chance to decide, keep it, modify it, leave it behind. And that intentionality and reflectiveness is, I think, what makes the journey worthwhile. I love it. Well, before, as we close the show here, Patrick Lencioni wrote a book that you thought was worth the read. Though he comes up often in the table group in this particular show, I hadn't actually encountered that book before. So tell me about the book. I think it's called Three Big Questions for a Frantic Family. And again, it's whether you're frantic or not, (laughs) it's just about what is essential for now? What do we want to work on in the next six months in our family? Who's needing most attention right now? Those are some really good takeaways from that book. Another one that I love is called Essentialism. That's one that I reread every year. I put myself on a little retreat and I go away with the book called Essentialism. And I decide, is that thing that I was devoting so much time, energy, money to, is that this year's thing? Yeah, I think that was that Greg McEwen. It was. Yeah. 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 I think about that often. The active pursuit of less but better. Mm -hmm. Actually, I just saw on LinkedIn the other day, Jared, that he's starting a new three things kind of newsletter to help prompt thinking on essentialism. So I signed up for that. It'll be interesting to see what emerges. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. There's an interesting thing, especially for kind of high capacity people. They're blessed with so many things that they could do but they don't often go through this process of really clearly identifying what are the things that I must do. Mm -hmm. And so you can be overwhelmed by all the things that you could do. But with the time that I have here on earth, what are the things that I must do? You know, speaking of the labyrinth, here we are back at that conversation again, how at a certain point in our life, opportunity becomes a dirty word because it just takes us away from the core stuff. We can get diluted and fail to make the impact in the way that we want on the thing we want. Excellent. Well, we'll end it there. We could Thank you so much for today's conversation. Covered some phenomenal stuff, and I think we've got some exceptional action items. And so we'll link to these books and tools in the show notes. Moira, we'll have to do it again. Thank you so much.